Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Kerry, my mum, is in her late 60s and has never been more in her power as she is now. She gives zero fucks, is passionate about politics and human rights, and has no time for ignorance. Mum was married to my dad, a French immigrant, and I was in my early 20s when I watched them navigate the end of their marriage in heartbreaking circumstances. After working as a teacher in a Melbourne adolescent psychiatric unit for 25 years, Mum has seen it all, which has made her a worry wart. Now she's retired down by the beach where she looks after my grandma, Emmy, and they try not to kill each other on a daily basis. Emmy is 93. She's blind in one eye and deaf in both ears, but her humour and wisdom are very much still intact. Back in the day, she was a nurse and went on to marry and have three children. Considering the extent of her childhood loss, Em is an eternal optimist, always seeing the good in people and situations. As she gets older, she has trouble hiding her cheeky side. Her inhibitions are disappearing as quickly as the remaining time we all have together. She continually cracks me up. I make up the third generation. I have a sneaky suspicion my inner Samantha from Sex and the City was passed down from them because she still comes out of the woodwork with her lustful sexapades. I have a beautiful primary school-aged son, Lulu, to a man I'm no longer married to. I've had my fair share of plot twists along the way with multiple rock bottoms, but unimaginable highs too. I'm engaged to Alex, who I met just before the first lockdown during the COVID-19 pandemic, but that's another story. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Grandmother Emmy, Mother Kerry, and daughter Isabel are three generations of the Silbury family. The Silburys have appeared on TV's Gogglebox since 2016, with the trio known for their strong opinions and great sense of humour. Today I'm talking to Emmy, Kerry and Isabel about their book, Out of the Box. Isabel, Emmy and Kerry, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having us. Lovely to meet you. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Now let's start at the beginning, Gogglebox. What was the experience of Gogglebox like for each of you? Was it a positive experience or more like a home invasion? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, positive. Quite positive. I, I enjoyed it. Well, for me, it was nothing unusual, sitting on the couch with my mum and my daughter drinking wine and watching shit on TV. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite an easy gig. You know, we hang out together like we've been hanging out all my life, um, just on the couch having cups of tea and wine and and talking about life's issues and politics. So, yeah, it's it's just an easy gig, really. It sure is. (laughs) Normal. The common thread seems to be the consumption of alcohol right through all of the contestants, if I can call them, on Gogglebox. Does that help the flow of ideas? It certainly helps when you have to watch things like Survivor and Maths. (laughs) Isabel, as you were filling out the application form for Gogglebox, you observed that there was a lack of real women on TV. What did you mean by that? And how do you three fill that gap? In history of mainstream media, there's a lack of women and a lack of real women I suppose um, for normal women like us to see ourselves reflected in mainstream media and 
I think we, the three of us, feel really passionate um, in order to fill that gap. I think it's necessary for women of all ages to see themselves reflected in mainstream media and to really sort of have the voices and opinions of real women just doing their thing and um, having that valued. Em, you're the grandmother, the matriarch, I suppose. Em, you grew up in Mildura during the Depression. We often hear about the good old days. Were they good? It was a difficult childhood at the, the very beginning. My father died when I was five and we were very poor because it was during the Depression. So Dad had to struggle to find work and he found work on a farm and became their gardener. And uh, that's how we managed to survive without money. And then Dad died, of course, and left Mum with seven children to, to cope with. We were a very lucky family. We um, knew a gentleman that my father worked for called Mr Frank Jenner, who owned a big property. He made sure that Mum got a decent house to live in, so he moved us to closer to Mildura, the town of Mildura, and put us in a comfortable house. So um, that part before was, was miserable, I'd say, a miserable childhood. But as I grew up, um, <clears throat> I was a very lucky child. I've, that sounds ridiculous because I'm gonna say in the same breath, my mother died when I was nine and I was transferred to live with one of her sisters in Tasmania. So I was shipped off overseas, as I called it. I'm going overseas. I was very excited about that. I remember well. Now, Kerry, you grew up in the 50s and 60s, a period known for the emergence of feminism. Was that something that filtered into your life? What did it mean to you then? And on reflection, what does it mean to you now? I think I am one of the real lucky ones because I'm a baby boomer. So I had it easy all the way through. I had a fabulous home family life in the suburbs of Melbourne, free and easy, running around on my bike and going down to the creek and, you know, total freedom as a kid. And then I was so lucky to have um, Gough Whitlam's free university education. I was the first person in my family to be university educated and that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for Gough Whitlam. I went through four years, four fabulous years at art school, living in Carlton in the 70s. I mean, you can't get better than that, really. You can't. And then, you know, with feminism that grew on me slowly, feminism for me in those days actually helped me find myself because um, I used to straighten my hair. I used to iron it and put it in great big rollers and do all sorts of stupid things because... I didn't look normal. And then when I went to art school and I saw an article about Angela Davis, the black rights activist in America, and she had this fabulous Afro. And I thought, if I leave my hair alone, I can do that. So since 1973, I haven't brushed my hair or done anything to it. I've just let it do its own thing. That's, that's an example of how feminism can work. It can liberate you from the, the chains of society's expectations as a female. It's amazing what a difference it can make. Isabel, you're the youngest of three generations of women growing up in vastly different times. 
how have the attitudes of your grandmother and mother influenced the way you've lived your life? Oh, like immensely. I think um, the two women who came before me are very different from each other and um, from me, but I have seen the way that women in families do support each other and really um, are there when, you know, you need to pull up your sleeves and just get shit done, for lack of a better term. Um, It is the women in my family who have really always been there, no matter what the situation is, without judgment and just because they're so different, they're still able to speak openly and honest with me about themselves. And so that's sort of shown me an example of the woman that I want to be for the next generation of, of my family. Emmy's upbringing as a woman was very different. I mean, the way she was in her marriage, you know, she was a stay-at-home mum and that, you know, working was never sort of encouraged, whereas my mum was a working mum. And, you know, as a child, I kind of really hated her for that and I wanted her to be there to you know bake cookies for me when I got home from school cookies yeah bake cookies (laughs) (laughs) like or some of the other mums you know around me and you know I remember her saying darling you know there are other you're fine there are other kids in the world who need my help and that's what I do every day I'm I'm helping my community I'm helping other kids in need and I was like okay and now as an adult, I really respect her for that. And I, I totally understand why she needed to have her own career and paved my way of what I want for my life. Have you learned to bake your own cookies? No, <laughs> she doesn't. No, no. Emmy, Mom, Emmy still does She still relies on me to do it. Yeah. I don't know who's going to bake them when you're not here. No, I think Lulu will. Yeah, my son bakes them with her. So. <laughs> well, as long as the recipes get passed down to the next generation, that's the main thing. Yes, yes. When I first moved out of home, Emmy hand wrote like 20 recipes for me and put them in a folder and I still got that folder. Do you use them? No, I I Google that. (laughs) That's a good question, Em. Do you use them? (laughs) On the subject of relationships, and the book is full of stories about relationships. It's one of the big themes of the book, particularly romantic relationships or relationships mostly with men. How has the way you each think about relationships changed? Um, for me, it's it's matured. That's what I think. I think I had certain ways of viewing what relationships look like and need to be. And after the process of writing this book with Mum and Emmy, I've realised that they are very complicated and they're not always as they seem. And yet the way you sort of conduct yourself after relationships. I think that really your true values really shine. What's made me think differently about relationships in a more mature light is hearing the stories from mum and M about their take on relationships from their perspectives, which has really shown me to not have judgment around what that looks like or what the outcome is. And really forgiveness, I think is a, is a big one, forgiveness of yourself and other people that you've been in relationships with and just understanding that as humans we're we're all developing and learning as no matter how old we are and that that plays out in relationships and and that's that's healthy can i insert another question here and i'll put this to kerry as well do you believe in life partners Mm, that's a very good question um look i think the old school methodist girl romantic in me would like to think that there are such things as life partners. 
But in reality, I think that's an enormous expectation to put on another person. And that's something that I've learnt through my romantic relationships, you know, going from being um, an art school hippie in the 70s and going with the flow as we used to do, you know, just grasping all of life's opportunities and not making any real decisions about where I was heading in terms of relationships. And then experiencing 27 years of a difficult marriage and coming out of that, I mean, the really huge thing that struck me coming out of my marriage was when I went to tell my best friend from art school um, that I, that my ex-husband had left me for another woman. She just looked at me on the doorstep and said, now I get the old Kerry back. And that was such a shock to me. I really thought, where have I been for the last 27 years? How has she processed that and, and seen the way I've changed and become? Um, so that really shocked me so much that I was determined that if I had any relationships after my marriage, um, which for five years I said I never wanted to look at another penis ever again. Don't say never. You, you never say never. Well, all my girlfriends just laughed. I laughed. I was like, you're going to regret saying that. Doesn't it depend on the penis? Yeah. Well, it did in the end. But um, <laughs> it did take me five years of recovery. But um, I was just absolutely determined that I was going to be, if I was going to be in another relationship, that it was going to be negotiated my terms were going to be very important that I declared them right from the beginning. And I did. I declared that I was never going to live with anybody again and never getting married again. And luckily, my fancy man declared exactly the same thing. So we met on common ground from day one. And we negotiate that very carefully. We respect each other's independence and, and privacy. And so far, three and a half years later, it's working very well. I'm his muse and he's my fancy man. The great quote is for women of my age, I don't want to be a nurse or a purse. A nurse or a purse. Do you believe in life partners? Yes. You do? I'm a romantic. I always thought that my marriage would last forever. Mm. Mm. And um, it didn't, but it lasted for 20, 28 years. And then he found a, a lady who was as old as me. 25-year-old girl. Barmaid. But you always have to stick the bar maybe. Well, you? because it, it forms a picture, doesn't it? But can I say, like, you say that, you know, your marriage didn't last that long, but we we know from reading the book that, yeah. you know, your love for each other, and it was a mutual love, yeah. lasted their whole life. Until he yeah. died, he still said he loved her. Yeah. And so that's my measure of true love and a, and a life partner is in that that love is still there for two people even if they're not together anymore under the circumstances mm. I've never had that I've, I've never had that so I think to have that is is mm. a very special thing but yes. I do still have that with at least one of my old two of my old boyfriends you both still love each other we still love each other but not in a sexual way oh yeah no hers is in a sexual way oh mm. yes Really? If Dad was still alive, you'd be having sex with him? No, but I did have sex with him while he was living with this other woman. You became the mistress. <laughs> You'll find all this out when you read the book. <laughs> I've read the book, but more seems to be coming out. <laughs> em, I've got a question for you. You're the one with the most experience and quite a lot of it by the sound of it. Have you ever been tempted to intervene in some of the decisions of your 
daughter and your granddaughter with regard to their choices in men and relationships? Intervene? No. I think I can happily say, no, I've never intervened. No. You've just lived your life and I've never said... Have I, you wanted to? Um, no, not really. In some ways, I wish you had. You could have warned me off. Off who? Which one? <laughs> you so, talking about her father. Yeah, intervention can sometimes be a good thing. No, from, but then I would have been here. Yeah, but if she'd stepped in and said to him, for example, mm. you know, certain things to him, it might have changed our course. But I rather liked him. Yeah, but that was your problem. You like any man who's yeah. bright and breathing. <laughs> she liked my ex-husband too. Yeah, she likes all the dust. <laughs> Education is another really important theme running through this book. Is academic success important to you? And if not, what kind of education do you think is the most important? Well, I think I should speak first because I'm the teacher in the team. Um, academic success is a fallacy. Success is a very um, undefined word. I think uh, success academically is what the young person needs to take out of their education and it's very individual so it could just be going to uni and mixing with lots of different kids and um, have the whole world opened up to you um, you don't have to get your high scores that's a whole load of bullshit learning education is a lifelong experience mm. and I think for example with Isabel I was very happy for her to follow her own path I never directed it um, I didn't care whether she tried lots of different things. I think the outcome um, is more important in terms of her development as a mature woman. I didn't care what marks she got, really. I never did. And I never mm. put pressure on you to choose subjects. I advised you, mm. but I never put pressure on you. You had to find your own way. And I'm really thankful for that because, yeah, as I say in my chapter about education, I was never asked, what do you want to do in life? It was, who do you want to be? Mm. Um, and I think those values around education is about, yeah, who you are as a person and what your values are and getting really, really clear on, on how you want to show up in the world as an adult. And, you know, education is such a, a huge, as you said, like it's, it's a vast, for me, education was traveling. You know, my parents took me around the world and, and showed me how different people live. And, you know, it, that taught me more than any subject at school you know I really got an idea of um, you know empathy and, and and values like that um, that you, you can't just teach at school and um, in terms of sex education and women menstruation and things like that these women educated me you know education on those sort of things are not happening properly in schools and as um, the adults and as parents we've got to sort of take it into our own hands about what sort of education we want for our kids and we've got to do it ourselves because it's yeah the system is kind of letting us down a bit in that regard you can't expect teachers to do everything no you? well uh, so we've got to as parents we've got to do it too yeah now em on the same subject you have obviously taught your daughters a lot what have they taught you they've taught me how to enjoy life not to worry but i still worry of course just taught me that being loving and love is the word that runs in our family. We, we, we live on love and they've taught me how to do that. 
because I wasn't a very demonstrative person when I was young. I'm still not demonstrative, and you're not demonstrative. Do you either. mean demonstrative affectionately, like, physically? You know, throwing your arms no, around each other like and doing that. No, we're not. And whenever I tell Kerry how much I love her, she says, Stop it. Stop it. I don't, you don't need to hear it. It's all right. I know. I know. <laughs> so Isabel has been a joy in my life. She brought lots of happiness when she was born. And because uh, that was just after I lost her father and mm. um, her grandfather. You, yeah, your <laughs> grandfather. Sorry. Well, where did you lose him? In the supermarket? <laughs> to the barber. With the, yes, easily done. I lost him to another woman. That's right. The barmaid. The barmaid. She must have been a hell of a woman, that barmaid, because she comes up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's another interesting theme. It's all about men. There's a whole section devoted to men, in fact. Now, if you could send a message out to men, what would it be? M, let's start with you. You're the one with the experience, apparently. Message to men. A message to men. To uh, stand by your girl, stand by your woman. Stand by your man. Yes, Jolly Pardon, stand by your man. It was yeah. Tammy Wynette. Oh, Tammy Wynette. <laughs> yeah, I think Dolly was working nine to five while Tammy was standing that's by right. her man. That's, that's what happened in my marriage, I think. He was working nine to five with another woman. <laughs> so it was a daytime affair, was it? No, oh, it was probably. It became a week, a week time affair. After a while, after he promised he'd always come home for the weekend. Don't give too much away, Mum. Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Kerry, what's your message to men? Be vulnerable. That was mine. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I can find another. I think one. I th think very sadly, men like us, women, you know, grow up with these societal expectations, and they think that it's that they they are emasculated if they show their their vulnerability when they're mm -hmm. sad or they're in love or you know all of those things. Like I grew up thinking that that boys couldn't didn't fall in love that they just wanted to fuck you really I think that's still true <laughs> and I it's taken me a long time to learn that they have very they have the same feelings as mm. as we do and they're taught not to express those feelings because they're unmasculine and I think that's really sad and so many of my friends actually I've probably got more male friends than I do female friends but I just love being with them and being and talking frankly and honestly and I mean, I've got male friends that I've had since I was a very young kid in the Glen Iris Methodist Youth Club where they're still my best friends. And we were 14 when we met. And I trust them implicitly and I love them dearly and they've been by my side through all the... Oh, geez, I'm going to cry. Through all the really hard things of my life. And, and they're, very, they're both very vulnerable men. I mean, not very vulnerable. They... They show themselves to me and they always have. They've always been very honest and frank with me. And we're mates, we're best mates. Mm. And it's a lovely thing to experience. But sadly, most men out there um, are, you know, ruled by their, you know, social, sausage, con social by their sausage and two veg. Oh. And it's oh, no. really oh, unfortunate. <laughs> Nicely put. Isabel, I think Kerry might have stolen some of the thunder there. Do you want to add something? Uh, no, just that. Vulnerability is strength um, mm -hmm. and 
that as women we see vulnerability as a strength and we find it really sexy and attractive mm. yeah. and if only men knew that um, about women and that we don't want you to be you know tough and be a man and toughen up we mm. want you to embrace your feminine qualities we all have both masculine and feminine in us and you know we're learning how to embrace our masculine in a in a woman type way and we we love it when men embrace their feminine qualities it's beautiful and just to to really sort of work through your social conditioning and and ask yourself is this really serving me Mm. and is this serving my marriage is this serving my parenting is this serving my career and how I can be a better man is is being your own kind of man whatever that looks like for the man um, is okay and that's the answer if men could only see how we respond to them when they cook us a meal mm. or do the vacuuming or clean the toilet, it's the sexiest thing a man can do. Or cry, <laughs> or cry, or yeah. cry. Sexiest right. thing is crying. Oh, my gosh, every time. Well, keep that in mind. It sounds like the ultimate would be for a man to cry while cleaning the toilet. I've just got one last question for you, and it's about the fame that Gogglebox has brought you. Does being famous change your lives, the way you live? No, not really. It's made me feel different uh, in a way that when I'm walking through the supermarket or down the high street, um, that people... You know, if, if they don't look at me and smile, I feel disappointed <laughs> because most of the time everybody does, mm. you know. Mm. When, when I first became famous, um, we, Isabel and I were walking down Hampton Street and uh, I said, the people of Hampton are so nice. I really like them. They're very friendly. And Isabel said... That's because they know who you are on television. Kerry, has it changed your life, the fame that Gogglebox has brought? I still can't even relate to it, really. It's still too... So, I mean, we're in our seventh year on Gogglebox and I still can't grasp the fact that people recognise me. And even now, you know, I was um, at my Fancy Man's Art Exhibition over the weekend and people walked up to me and said, I know you from somewhere. And my automatic reaction is, oh, maybe I taught your children. What school did they go to? Because I've been teaching for 40 years and I've taught thousands of kids. And that's my first reaction. And I don't even think that maybe they've seen me on TV. It doesn't occur to me. But you can't pick your nose. But I can't pick my nose in the car anymore. <laughs> Just in case. There's paparazzi. Well, I can't complain at restaurants anymore. <laughs> no, you can't throw tantrums anymore in public. Isabel, has it changed your life in any way? The fame itself doesn't really change my life, but the responsibility, I guess, of having a platform and a voice has, Mm -hmm. and I really take that seriously. And, you know, my whole life I've seen people in in the spotlight who have got a platform um, who have a voice and they don't really use it for anything that constructive. I've been given it and... I haven't asked for it, but I'm more than happy to use it for good. And people are listening to us and I really want to make sure what we're saying and putting out there is of value. I'm very passionate about that. Yeah, this book is not about just writing a book. 
or any sort of boring memoir. It's really to sort of inspire other people to have some really good, open, raw conversations with each other and find that intimacy within their relationships, within their families, and to really break down the stigma of um, lots of issues that us women and all women um, have been through from three perspectives of time. So, yeah, we just, we hope that people enjoy it. On that point, I want to thank you, Isabel, Emmy, and Kerry Silbury for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. It was great fun. Thank you so much for having us. I've enjoyed every minute. I've been talking to Isabel, Emmy, and Kerry Silbury about their new book, Out of the Box. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.